The reason we celebrate the Transfiguration today is August 6th is on the church calendar as, as the solemnity of the Transfiguration. Otherwise, it would be uh, just a, a normal uh, Sunday in ordinary time. So the Transfiguration, right? This image, um, well, so Peter, James, and John go with Jesus up the mountain, and then they have this vision of Jesus being raised up, right? His, his clothes become dazzling white, just this amazing vision. And then Moses and Elijah appear next to him and they're conversing with him. Then they have this voice from the Father, the voice from God, the Father, saying, this is my beloved son, listen to him. It's a pretty amazing, if you think about it, if, if you were there, right, if you were in that moment, it would be something you wouldn't forget. There's no way you would forget that. Um, I was thinking about this last night I was just kind of perusing my thoughts, trying to think back to early memories just as I was a teenager, the things I could remember, like how much could I remember about it? You know what I mean? And um, I still remember 1986, December, Veterans Memorial Coliseum journey, raised on radio tour. I was to the upper stage left, not great seats, but uh, one of my early concert memories great memory for me. I can remember all kinds of details about it. And I'll never forget being in that moment, okay? Now, my point is that the disciples, and there were three of them, they're not gonna have that experience of Jesus and get it wrong. So that when it came time to write it down, right, and the gospel writers are saying, okay, what did you see again? How did that go? I mean, you've told us about it before. And they're like, this is what happened. It's burned into our memories because it wasn't even as long as me back to high school that this would have been written down. So when it came time for the gospel writers to put all this together, they're talking to the apostles and the apostles are saying, this is what happened. We were there. We were there with Jesus. The reason I'm pointing this out, the reason why I'm making an issue of this is because we are forced to decide what we believe. Either this event happened like they said, because they wouldn't get it wrong, or they made it up. They made it up. Because it's not the kind of thing, right, you'd kind of remember. It's the kind of thing you'd really remember. And I think what, what can happen for us is we, we do look at Scripture, we look at divine revelation, and we kind of wonder, how, what if it is real? What if it is allegorical? Right? What if it is uh, more historical? And when we read the Gospels, they're very historical. They're eyewitness accounts. They're biographical. They're the kind of thing that, that a guy's like, okay, how did it go? Like, tell me, and we're going to write it down. That's how they read. And some of them are more, you know, they have different authorship and everything else. They have a different, but so for us, we got to make a decision. Do we believe it happened or not? Now, the second thing for the test is this. Um, I'm preparing you for the Catholic test. You're all going to have, sooner or later, I'm going to give it to you, over with donuts, multiple choice. So I, I want you to be able, I'm going to get to the second half of my homeland in a second, but I want you to be able to have an idea and understanding of why the transfiguration, what's the point? Why do you do it? Okay. So the transfiguration happens toward the end of Jesus' life. And right after they come down from the mountain, they begin their journey to Jerusalem and the cross, suffering and death. 
And what we believe about the transfiguration is that Jesus is giving three of his apostles this amazing vision of his glory, that he's showing them Moses, who represents the law, and Elijah, who represents the prophets, and he's talking with them that this is a vision that everything he's doing is fulfilling the law and the prophets, all that came before. Because he knows Peter, James, and John are gonna have this experience of his death. And he wants them to remember, you saw this when you are faced with hopelessness. Remember this vision. When you are faced with seeing me suffer, remember this vision. When you are faced with your own suffering, which is gonna come, remember this vision. Do not lose hope that no matter what you experience in this, in this life, that I have conquered it. That's the point. And it's the point for us as well. Because Jesus submits himself to suffering and death. He makes of himself a victim for us. And there should be a scandal of the cross that it took and God chose to redeem us through his death. That's how serious all of this is. It's not that God doesn't love us. It's, of course, it's quite the opposite. It is that he loves us. It is that he wants to redeem us. But for mercy and justice to be fulfilled, we have the cross and we have the death of God. That's how serious sin is. That God himself chooses to be victim for us. But also, he communicates to us that he unites himself with victims, that he makes himself one of us, just as he lived this life, but also as he experienced suffering and death, he makes of himself a victim and unites his suffering with our suffering. Because, you know, one of the biggest questions we all have is, why suffering? Why evil? Why victimization? And what is God doing about it? And so Jesus says to us, out of that experience, I am your savior, I am your redeemer, your victimization, which is real, does not have the last word. But if you seek to be redeemed and healed from it, there is that possibility, and it lies in me, says the Lord. It lies in Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting is as we move from the, the Middle Ages, the medieval period, into what we consider modernity, which is people fight about dates, but um, let's say mid-1600s through the mid-20th century, modernity. What happens is um, Western civilization particularly becomes more and more secular. And as it becomes more and more secular, it seeks to solve these problems through the efforts of reason and man through our own efforts. So in other words, man seeks to save himself. And we see this paradigmatically in the, in the late 19th century with things like um, you know, science, psychology, and economics, right? The three thinkers who influenced the 20th century the most in these regards are Darwin, Marx, and Freud. And their goal was to kind of explain human existence. I mean, some of this is just very good stuff, right? But the problem with it is twofold. All three of these, uh, these ways of thinking is that they're inherently deterministic. In other words, they say that you're, you don't really have free will. 
that what happens to you is, is, is based on causation. In other words, you're a victim of your biology, you're a victim of your psychology, or you're a victim of your economic class, right? And all of these theories posit ways to sort of deliver the human being from these states. You can either through science, science is your liberation, psychoanalysis is your liberation, or economics, mainly Marxism, and socialism is your liberation. Now, we continue throughout the history of, of, of human thought, and because secular humanism sets in, right, people start to try to find ways to be healed and redeemed without God. And those are three paradigmatic ways that they've tried to do it. And, and of course, while there can be benefits, there's certainly benefits to science. I love having an iPhone. I, you know, it's great. I love, I love science. I love having science. But it is not my redeemer. It will not save me. Economic policy, well, that can be much debated. But, you know, the, the problems with socialism aren't necessarily what it does with the money, but what it does to the person. The problems inherent in socialism is that it negates freedom and virtue. If you don't have to strive, and if you've lived in a socialist country as I have, you see this. If there's no striving, there's no virtue, there's no seeking excellence, there's just somebody else will save me, namely the government. Good luck. The government will say, it doesn't matter who's in power, good luck. You know, the problem is, again, Human beings trying to save human beings. And then, of course, psychology, there's great benefits to psychoanalysis. There's great benefits to, uh, to therapy, etc. And it can help, just like all of these things can help, but they don't save and they don't redeem. Now, as we move into post-modernity, you know, you hear me talk about this a lot, and you will continuously because it's the things I think about. So as we move into our situation now, it's changed from those kind of ideas, and they've kind of been wrapped up in this whole idea of victimization. Okay, so now what we have is man trying to save man, the human person, human beings trying to save other human persons by uplifting their victimization and seeking to keep them in their victimization. So the idea is then in post-modernity that your victim identity is your path to power, is your path to redemption. And if you merely lord that over others and then make them victims, then that is how you're going to have power. And furthermore, right, we have people, particularly in this case, politicians typically, right, but it's not just politicians, but other people saying, you're a victim, you're a victim, you're a victim, you're a victim, which, by the way, is true. But what they want is for people to remain victims so that they can be the savior. Once again, secular humanism, man trying to save man. And it never works because we're not God. It doesn't matter who you line up. You can evaluate. If you start to look at things through this lens, you see it happen all the time. Why is victim identity uplifted so much? Because it's man trying to save man. But what ends up happening is people who have truly been victimized, right? Because victims, all of us end up being victims in some way or another, and some more profoundly than others. And victimization is real. 
what people do to other people, victims of war, victims of biology, victims of, of psychology and upbringing, right? Victims of, of uh, abuse from others. Racism is real, it happens. Um, bigotry is real, it happens. But what's, what's happened now in post-modernity is we've been taught that you need to use your victimization and status as a weapon to gain power. And by the way, we're gonna help you do it if you just vote for us or give us more money. It's the path for people who have power and money to keep getting it. The lie, the truth is victimization is real and it needs to be dealt with. But the lie is that a human being is going to be able to redeem you. And furthermore, they don't wanna redeem you because if you remain a victim, they remain your savior and they can maintain power and influence, right? The other thing, the other lie about this, and we know this even, even in good psychology, is that when a person remains in their victim state, this is not to say victimization isn't real, as I've made a point of, but when they remain in their victim status and they keep that identity, you're actually giving away your power to the one who victimized you. So remaining in that state and not seeking to be redeemed and not seeking to change one's identity keeps you subservient to the one who victimized you. This is the inherent lie. You wonder why is, why is the world at each other's throats? You know, we, we usually just put this into like left and right, you know, unfortunately, but it's really just everybody. Why is everybody at everybody's throats? Because everybody's a victim and everybody's trying to victimize somebody else to feel better about it. The path through it is to stop being a victim, to stop giving away our power and allow God to redeem us. See, this is what Jesus says to us from the cross. As he's on the cross, he says to all of us, I am victim also. He knows what it feels like to suffer. He knows what it feels like to be abused. He knows what it feels like to be abandoned by God. And so many people have had that experience too. And on the cross, when he says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? In that moment, he felt for the first time in his existence, the second person of the Trinity felt cut off from the Father. This was the greatest suffering he had. And for many of us, the same, when we feel like God has abandoned us. And what Jesus says to us through all of this and through his resurrection is, I have not abandoned you. I am with you. And yes, victimization is real, but I am your redeemer, no one else. Other things can help. Yes, we should work to reduce victimization in the world. That is all true, but it will never be done away with. And it cannot be because we are not God. Only God can alleviate what has happened to any individual in this fashion. And so what we need to do as a, as a church and as a society is allow God to be God of our lives, to, Lord of our lives. And if any of us are caught up in this victim identity, it is a hopeless and helpless pursuit which leads to degradation of the human person. What we need is resurrection. What we need is redemption. What we need is to begin to see our identity as sons and daughters of Jesus Christ, 
who have been redeemed, who are seeking resurrection and will in fact have that at the end of the age. This is the vision of the transfiguration, not just for the apostles that Jesus would be victorious, but we too will be victorious in him. This is what awaits us. This vision of Jesus is what we will receive as his church. We will be redeemed. We will be healed. But we need to allow God to be our redeemer and no one else. Please stand.